Hey folks, John from A's for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Grace Jordan. She's a friend, fellow writer, and sober not, and we had a chance to talk about sobriety, drunkenness, emotional drunkenness, the rich tapestry of our hangovers, and playing the game. We talked about creating, destroying, having a good time, and recovering from that good time to find a better way to live. It's always an inspiring relief to talk to her and listen to her. And I'm eternally grateful for being able to call her my friend. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Grace Jordan. Grace. It's been a while. Um, thank you for doing this. I appreciate your time. Um, we met online. Like we haven't officially met in in person, but during the workshop, the writers' workshop this last summer, and um, yours was my favorite by far. <laughs> I mean, you know that. I told you that. Um, but I was also. I guess I shouldn't have been surprised at how many people were sober in this workshop in this particular workshop yeah the- i always am you know when i encounter a little a small crowd which is where yeah um it's it's nice it's always nice to be in familiar company yeah um so i wanted to bring you here i guess because part of you know not only because you're just sober but in reading the portions of your manuscript that i was allowed to read I got a little bit of an insight into, you know, your previous life and in, in some ways. And I found it, I mean, not only was it engaging as a piece, as a piece of work, um, but it was, it was interesting nonetheless. And I really connected with it in, in a few different ways. Um, But so as far as alcohol and alcoholism, where do you remember that being, um, early on, when was your first engagement with it, either through family or with yourself? My first engagement with alcoholism um, wasn't drinking. It was knowing that my mom's biological father was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And um, I also have some other alcoholics in my family. And so I witnessed that, you know, firsthand um, and saw my parents sort of navigating those relationships. I did not encounter, I didn't drink like in high school or um, middle school or any, you know, when I went to my first homecoming dance, I, someone handed me a beer at a party afterwards and I went into the bathroom, poured it out and filled the can with water. Okay. Like <laughs> that's who I was. Okay. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I was very scared and I knew that I wasn't supposed to. Um, when I got to college, I started grappling with my identity. Um, my social identity, my sexual identity. And I had always been pretty, 
I guess I just didn't want to be shy. I had always been a little bit shy and I was a little bit scared having come from a fundamentalist Christian background um, of trying new things Mm -hmm. and of having new experiences. So when I discovered um, at a party just how much easier it was to um, talk to people um, and even actually sort of flirt with this girl, which it was the first time I had ever openly done that. And I was starting to think, okay, I'm probably bisexual, but um, yeah, that can never happen, Um, you know? And um, then I started to use alcohol as a way to be more open frequently. Um, When I moved I moved to New York. I was still in college. So I guess I went to New York to do a, a play downtown mm-hmm. at La Mama. And so I was 20, um, but I had a fake ID, of course. Um, and I, um, I was just thinking of the woman whose fake ID mm-hmm. I was using. She was five inches taller than me and had different color eyes. And like, we looked nothing alike, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I used... Um, alcohol is a way to sort of explore the gay community okay is to be brave enough to do that right and um and i suppose i'm imagining you know not the the liberation on both parts both socially and sexually like oh wow now i have found this thing that allows me to feel not only more comfortable but everything is exciting and new and I've been constricted for so long from anything exciting and new. So it must be doubly like I found the key. I did think that I I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I don't remember thinking like in a tangible way that I found the key. Okay. Um, I don't remember ever having that thought. I just like who I was when I partied. I, I can I can relate to that for sure because you know I was always I was always it made me feel even if I wasn't I always felt like I was more the center of attention and it taught me how to get to be the center of attention what I could say or do um, sometimes to my own detriment but there was always right like a a fun story the next day oh God did you hear about what John did and that sort of thing um. So at this point, this is, um, you're enjoying it. Things are going great. You've, you have this, I don't want to say new life, but alcohol has made you a little more comfortable with yourself and meeting people that you wouldn't normally meet and enjoying life a little bit more. Did you find any problems with this early on? Looking back, I can see that there were problems mm-hmm. at the time. I, um, you know, when I finally moved to New York permanently the year after that, um, I um, lived with a bunch of other theater majors and we all worked in restaurants and we all, you know, had kept late nights and we all smoked a lot of pot. And we all drank a lot of cheap alcohol and 
also we, you know, drank at each other's restaurants because we could do that for next to nothing. Um, and we actually, sorry about that. Did that's you hear okay. that? Yeah. Um, I don't know how to turn those off. I don't think. Not a problem. Um, I will quit that. Okay. I, uh, where was I? Drinking at each other's restaurants because it was so cheap. I know that one too. Yeah, we were drinking at each other's restaurants because it was so cheap. And um, we dubbed ourselves um, very like egotistically, the young and remarkable people. Because, you know, we lived, uh, we lived all over. We lived um, in uh, Williamsburg and Bushwick, right when people were first starting to live in Bushwick. Um, and we lived uh, up in Spanish Harlem. And I don't know. We just felt like we were invincible. I felt like I was invincible, but looking back, I can see that there were definitely problems. There was a lot of drama in my life and there were a lot of emotional mood swings. Um, there um, were a lot of dangerous situations that I found myself in. Yeah. I started blacking out. Um, and you know, my roommates would have to take care of me or like put me in the bathtub to make sure I would like wake up. And um, I didn't feel super apologetic about it the way I would have maybe a few years later. Um, I just felt like it was, this is what you do, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, 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 again, the same way where this, there was never a thought that I never had a thought for a very long time, I should say. I never had a thought where, oh, maybe I should quit this. Maybe there should be a change. Maybe alcohol is the thing that's causing all this. It was just part of the game. And being being hungover was part of the game. And I used to have this joke, and I would talk about the um, the rich tapestry of my hangover and the nausea and the headaches and the the colors and the dizziness. And I had this whole like thing because I was romanticizing this sickness that I was inflicting upon myself on an almost nightly basis, but yeah. never thought, Oh, maybe I should quit drinking. And even when the doctor said you need to quit alcohol for two months or just, you know, and I did that, it was excruciating and it was daily. Like, ugh, I can't believe I can't drink today. And I was miserable. And then when the first of the year came along, the first thing I couldn't wait to like, let's do a shot at midnight. And, you know, so it wasn't really, I didn't learn anything during that period of sobriety other than I was miserable without alcohol. And I didn't even learn that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so this is going on, you're moving in New York. It sounds like a pretty exciting time. Nonetheless, you know, like there's lots of cool stuff going on and living this, like you said, young and remarkable, which, you know, I think I had similar thoughts of like, man, me and my friends are really cool. Like I have the coolest friends, the coolest group of people. Um, and in some ways I, the few that I still connect with, I still feel that way about them. Um, but we were all a mess. Absolutely. 100% a mess. How um, did you, did you find any serious consequences coming from this or was it, I mean, not just obviously blacking out is, is a serious consequence, but anything that made you stop and think twice? 
I changed everything in my life, but the problem, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I left New York. I came back to New York. I moved to LA. I moved to New York. I got a new job. You know, I always had gigs. Um, I blew up opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Um, And I was very frustrated with myself um, at a point. And, you know, I didn't fully realize, I think, you know, just how many underlying issues there were like this deeply repressed homophobia, this depression, which I believe I I had been depressed from the time I was like a small child, you know, an anxiety disorder, just like all all of these things that made me feel so terrible. I was masking them with smoking a ton of pot and drinking a lot of alcohol because I don't know, I got sucked into a vortex of doing that. Well, I think too, when we're not, I, for me, I was never taught as a child how to process emotions, especially bad ones. And, you know, because of the, the abuse growing up, it was best to not talk about anything and it was best to keep it to yourself. And so I learned that one long before I ever picked up a drink, right? Like that, that, Nope. Just, just ignore that. That's nothing. Move along, move along. Nope. And so I think that that was sort of the precursor. So of course that's going to cause, you know, for me, frustration and depression and anger and all the things that we end up talking about in recovery, you know? Um, So in your drinking, you know, you talk about geographically changing, um, changing jobs, finding, seeking for anything other than fixing the problem. What was the, um, or was there, was there something in specific that was there a moment, was there a moment of clarity or was it that said you were like, I need to stop this thing. Like what, when did that come and what was that like? So there were a series of um, what I like to call smaller bottoms, which would have been someone else's major bottom. You know, I um, fell off of something. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what. And I split my chin open and I had, um, I woke up in a pool of my own blood one morning and I thought it was funny. I thought it was hilarious. I actually like texted my boss and I was like, do you know a plastic surgeon? Like I like cut my chin open and I texted my hairdresser and he's like, yeah, put a butterfly bandaid on that, you know, just like another gay voice. And he was like, yeah, like, you know, also like my, I have an aside, which is like partying is really um, ingrained in the LGBTQ community. So I think there's like this normalcy of like going out and being gay and, um, being sort of a mess and it being celebrated. Um, but I eventually, a girl I was sort of sleeping with at the time, I texted her and I said, Hey, look what I did. And she said, you should get stitches. So, 
so I went to the ER and I thought it would be like a stitch or two and it was seven. And um, then I had a friend come, uh, she, she was nine months pregnant, my friend. She came all the way up to Harlem from her downtown apartment. And she said, like, I, I just want to talk to you. And she introduced me to another friend who was in the program. And long story short, I ended up going to a meeting and I let the person who brought me, the friend of a friend of a friend, uh, buy me like the book, uh, <clears throat> Living Sober. And I never read it and I never went back. And I just started like for a few months, just like really monitoring my drinking. Like every time I had a glass of wine and I'd have like three glasses of water, I would really work hard to like stay in control. Um, and then I moved to LA again for the summer and I um, had a period of writing where I was like, I'm not going to drink. Mm -hmm. And then when the writing was done, I celebrated by drinking and I moved back to New York and um, I eventually, you know, I'm like barreling towards my bottom here um, with these little stops along the way. And um, I went to a meeting after I lost my laptop one night out and I called a friend and he brought me to take my laptop and he brought me to a meeting and um, I stayed sober for, I think, like a week. Mm -hmm. And then I went to like some special holiday meeting where like people were, uh, it was like a talent show. And it was so awful and so horrifying that I went, <laughs> I went home and bought a, like, I bought a bottle of rosé on the way home. I was like, fuck this. This is like the lamest, saddest thing I've ever seen. Um. Then Christmas happened and I went to a friend's house for dinner and I walked home and this is Christmas Eve. So Christmas Eve at around 10 PM, I started drinking gin and tonics. And for the next 48 hours, I didn't stop. And uh, when I woke up, I was in a pool of my own stench and um, I was shaking and I had a rash and I felt like death. It wasn't being hungover. It was something new. It mm. was like, oh, all those different alcohols you were drinking. Cause I started with gin and then it, oh, I was house sitting for a friend. So um, I slowly drank everything in her cupboard is <laughs> what happened. And I also had a bunch of Xanax that I was popping as well, um, per periodically um, in some fashion. So um, I was really, really scared. I was really scared. I thought I would die. Like I didn't know what was happening to me physically. And I knew I needed like a major reckoning. So I had been like very public on social media that, pat that year. Um, and so I called myself out on social media mm -hmm. and I just said, I have a problem and people really reached out. Um, a lot of people I didn't even know, like also had this problem. And, um, 
my friend who I was house sitting for, she basically was like, okay, this is great that you like posted it, but you're going to a meeting today. And I did. And um, I went to a meeting, um, a very nice meeting where there weren't scary people performing talent, <laughs> talent shows. Yes. And um, this woman got up there and basically told my story. And she's, you know, was older than I am. And I just looked at her and I thought she was so together. I thought I want what she has in 20 years. Mm-hmm. So that was that was my bottom. And, you know, everyone was very kind. They embraced shaking, scared, crying me and, you know, said all the things like you never have to drink again. And you can have a box of Entenmann donuts if you want instead and come to this diner with us. And here's a nice woman who will be your sponsor. And like, they were, they were all really kind. And I don't think I could have I know I couldn't have gotten sober without the people I spent my first 30 days with. Yeah. I think a lot of that finding that kindness for me was also really pivotal to embracing the change that I needed because, you know, again, going back to the abusive childhood that I had, And then even long after, you know, I had left home and my father passed away, I was still perpetuating all of the abuse inside myself. And, you know, I was still like saying all these terrible things to myself. I was still thinking all these terrible things about myself. And then to go like, oh, you mean there's people who actually care? that they really, there's, there's nothing else here. They don't want money or attention or anything else. They're like, Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, and it's all kind of this collective let's get through this thing. And that was a huge shift for me to find somebody and be like, wow, you're, you're quiet and thoughtful and kind in everything that I have not been for the last however many years in my drinking. And it was like such a relief to find that and to be able to be at a, you know, at that horrible broken moment where I'll take whatever I can get. And, you know, thankfully it was that. Um, so you took to it and it, and it, it has worked and you are healed. Well, mirac- yeah. I mean, <laughs> miraculously, I found it much easier to stop hating myself once my mood was able to Mm -hmm. like equalize a little bit, not to say I don't have days of complete loathing, but Mm -hmm. um, I'm able to bounce back from them a little faster. Right. Right. Um, That's awesome. And, and how long have you been sober? What is your, what is your date? Um, My date is the 28th of December, 2017. Awesome. So three and a half years. Awesome. So it'll be, it'll be four years this year. Yeah. This well, Christmas. actually, yeah, it's, it's over three and a half years. I guess it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. That four is coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that I, that I wanted to ask you about, since you have, you have done this both um, drunk and sober is writing and creating 
and your thoughts on getting sober and continuing to be a writer? Like, what was it like writing and creating while you were drunk? What was the process there? Well, I'll preface this by saying there were very few times where I was drunk and writing. Okay. I um, could not write when I was drinking. I would write after I was drinking, like the day after or, you know, but like in a binge itself, maybe there were a few times I took my journal to a bar and I think, you know, I wrote some prose, which for just like, you know, observances, which I'm grateful I, I have because they're indicative of my own very sad unraveling. Um, my handwriting's pretty hard to read in most of those. Um, but I will say it doesn't matter that I wasn't drinking while I was writing because my mind was still um, stuck and not growing. So, I mean, I would have like periods of intense productivity, but I even think thematically in my work, it was impossible for me to move forward um, until I started to heal. You know, a lot of my work was very repetitive, was very, um, you know, um, very emotional in a way that um, was helpful, but it's not, you know, it's not gonna give you the peace that you want if it's only emotion mm -hmm. and, it, and it's lacking um, reasoning and, and structure and um, those other tools. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yes, I, I completely understand. Um, I have a lot of drunk writing myself and it's <laughs> like complete, I guess, what is it? Id, just absolute emotional id and going, what are we doing here? <clears throat> um, so now that you, when you got sober, was there any concern? So you didn't necessarily, alcohol was not a crutch on which you stood for your writing. It, you know, it affected you but it was not a crutch. So the transition into being sober and writing didn't feel difficult. It, <clears throat> as I grew, inevitably, the things I wanted to write about changed. Mm -hmm. um, instead of, writing about these obsessions I could never move on from. I um, wanted to explore um, things beyond that and community beyond that and myself beyond that. Mm -hmm. um, so there were periods of just um, re- uh, recalibrating um, my own self before I could return to the page. Mm. I was 
really like gung ho about um, writing strips for a really long time. And I am, um, I wanted that collaboration. I really ached for that. And I did have that and I'm grateful that I had it. But now I'm sort of exploring different things and different ways of writing. Um, my main focus, as you know, is nonfiction right now. And, um, and I love that. I love that time with myself. I, um, I'm taking a step back from some script writing right now um, because I think aspects of the collaboration actually didn't serve me well artistically. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're part of the indie scene and filmmaking and theater, you're like um, having to do a lot of other stuff that's not the writing yourself. You're having to like convince people they want to do your work and uh, find a space and find actors and all these things um, or make the movie to show that you can write a movie. And um, I really did not think those things were fun. So no, no marketing or scouting or casting or directing for you. Yeah. No, I'm just done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just done with it. Um, I think too, there's something very, for me, very gratifying, gratifying about the solitude of, of writing um, rather than, I mean, I love collaboration too. And I've collaborated with other artists and, you know, done some animation stuff and things like that of that nature, but, um, and some other poetry things with, with artists and illustrators, but to sit down and just like, okay, what are we going to do? And even if it doesn't always work out the way that I want it to that afternoon, which is very often, there's something gratifying about being like, okay, I did that and that's done. Um, And I also like what you said about all of the old obsessions and being able to, to grow as a writer and to think about just think about other things because if you're locked into this sort of at least for me it was always the misery and the woe and somehow this pain was going to create something great and occasionally there was some nuggets in there right occasionally something would come through and I was like that's really good but most of it was kind of whiny (laughs) for me you know so um it definitely was like, oh, okay, I don't have to be so fixated on this thing that's making me unhappy. I can write about things that make me happy, or I can write about things that are completely unrelated to me entirely and go, oh, okay, I can do that too. So it really does, I think, sobriety or has for me opened up a great many more ways of thinking than I thought. Absolutely, yeah, I relate to that. with your, when you, you talked earlier about coming from a, um, did you say fundamentalist Christian background? Yeah. And in the program, there's a lot of talk about a higher power. How do you, did you have trouble reconciling the two? You know, 
No, I know a lot of people do, um, but I had long suspected that whatever God I was taught in my childhood, like, wasn't like real. Um, and I knew that in order to love myself, I would need to let go of that God. Like I knew that was a part of my healing and I, I had that awareness and I'm grateful that I had that. So, um, I didn't like think about God a whole lot. I thought about, you know, like take what works, leave the rest. Like, you know, yeah. like I, I, I thought about like my community and my, um, sharing as sort of the God that worked for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, there were times I tried meditating. Um, and now I think I have this idea of God as like sort of everything. I think God is, God is everything and God is in everyone. Um, kind of idea. It's not some, uh, you know, like we all want good. Well, not all, but generally most people want good for each other and good for themselves mm -hmm. and are good at their core. And if someone's not good, it's usually because they're hurting. And so um, I've been working right now, like I'm just trying to work on my empathy and my understanding for like other people. That way I cannot make it about me you know? Yes. Yes. I've, yeah. mm -hmm. I found that if I'm, you know, it's funny because when I'm frustrated with something else or someone else or something about the world and I'm angry. And if I kind of dig down underneath whatever that feeling is, and then I come to realize, Oh, this is about you. This is not about them. This is not about something else that's affecting you externally in the world. And granted, there are external forces out there that sometimes make it difficult for me to live my life. And that goes for everyone, right? But um, it's like, oh, wait a second, John, this is something else that you have not resolved or thought about or have been ignoring for a very long time. So <clears throat> yes, Empathy is is a huge thing, especially when it's somebody who say, not only do I not agree with, but I imagine wants to do me harm. <laughs> How do I have empathy for that person? Well, like you said, they're they're hurting. That's why they're behaving in the way that they're behaving. Usually, for the most part. Yeah, there I mean, are exceptions. There's a few evil people. <laughs> Just yes, yes, yes. Um but, but even if then, you, if you get into those stories, like, cause I love villains. Mm -hmm. If you get into the story of the villain, villains only become villains because, you know, they didn't get to a meeting. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I didn't know that about you. You love villains. Yeah. Yeah. What's your fate? Who's your favorite villain or who are your, some of your favorite villains? Oh, um, you know, I really like the, like the anti-hero. Um, I like uh, the talented Mr. Ripley a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always been a fan of Dexter. Yes. Um, I also, you know, just love, um, Maleficent from, uh, you know, Disney, mm -hmm. uh, 
Oh, Cruella DeVille. She's a good one. I yes. just got into her again. Yeah. She's going to skin puppies, right? I mean, that's her whole thing. Did you watch the new one? No. Okay. You got to watch it. Okay. I don't want to give it away. <laughs> okay. I won't. I won't. I, I will. I don't give it away. Um, huh. Okay. Yeah. Talented Miss Ripley was dark, huh? I mean, there's some layers of darkness and narcissism and manipulation there. Well, I oddly am a really um, studied Patricia Highsmith aficionado, the author. Okay. Um, I know almost her entire canon and I know a lot about her as well. So um, she was also a gay woman Mm -hmm. um, in the 50s. And um, I suspect that she was probably um, non-binary or trans in a time when that was a little bit harder <laughs> to uh, express than it is now. So I think, and, and she also drank. So like, there are all these things that go into the psyche of like her characters, which mm -hmm. I'm able to sort of unpack and I believe understand. Huh. I mean, that makes me think of it in a whole different way now. Like I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah. I, I, understanding villains, I guess helps us understand ourselves. Um, <clears throat> I, um, what do you, uh, what do you struggle with right now? Like in sobriety, in recovery, what is your, what are some of your, what is your biggest struggle right now? My biggest struggle right now is, um, gosh, this is fun. <laughs> That's a fun question. Um, you know, I'm sort of a meeting hopper. I'm a little, there's a, there's like one meeting I, I, I go to more than the others, but I'm not really friends with anyone in the meeting. And, um, I have my people I text, but I, um, I don't know. I have this friend who like got into, um, AA when she was like 18 and she's like super close with everyone. And for me, I just, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to be your friend. Like, I don't, um, but I know some really incredible people through the program who have really been there for me, especially this past year. Um, and I think sometimes you do have to go to different meetings to find different people who can assemble your tribe. It's mm -hmm. not like there's one, it's not like there's one place that's maybe the, like, the I don't know, the Mecca of like, everything AA, you know, right. You can take different, again, different little bits from different, uh, different meetings and different groups of people. So, um, I guess for me, the desire to drink was really lifted and I'm so grateful for that because I know it's not the case for everyone, but I struggle with my, um, emotional drunkenness as, as is said in AA. So, um, going to meetings helps with that, but it also, um, hurts with that because it's like, um, uh, you know, it's just, I guess what I mean is, um, going to meetings can help me emotionally and it can also frustrate the heck out of me emotionally because, I think maybe sometimes that I, I need, 
another kind of meeting or something. You know? Sure. Yes, I do. I mean, I was, I was at the point where I was going to one regularly and I was becoming irritable, restless, and discontent because of these, this group of particular people. And I was like, God, this again, you again, again, again with this thing. And, and then I realized, oh, well, I guess I'll just take a break. And I started branching out and hitting other places and going to other meetings. And almost immediately it was like, oh, okay. So I just need to stop going to that one for a little while. And I came back and it's, you know, my, my home group and I love all those people, but it was nice to be able to go like, oh, okay. There are other perspectives. There are meetings that, you know, I I've been to multiple times where there's varied people in there where there doesn't seem to be any regular regularity to it. And that's great too. I mean, just the, you know, going to the one at the, at the rehab center was eye-opening beyond belief because these are people that are raw. These are people that are like out of prison and out of the hospital and all these things and going, Oh, okay. So it's not just me being irritated because somebody wants to keep complaining about their, their life and this, that, and the other. Right. So, um, I think it's such an important thing because we don't, as with alcohol, we can't keep going back to the same thing over and over and over and over expecting to get new stuff if we need new stuff. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think that that's hugely important and thank God that there are multiple meetings all over the place. And, you know, when I was in, when I was in Hawaii one year, a few years back and I just wandered in some meeting on the beach. I was like, this is amazing. You guys are just here and we're going to kind of do the same thing, but it's completely different. Like what a, what an awesome thing. So um, yeah, I, I, I get it. The, the emotional drunkenness. I like that, that phrase too. I have not heard that one. Um, so yeah, I, saw your, I saw your face light up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was like, oh, okay. Emotional drunkenness. Cause I, I don't drink anymore and I don't have the urge. You know, it's funny. I thought about this, this too, the other day, because I had a friend come over who drinks and he brought his own booze and he comes over regularly and like, whatever, he has a couple of drinks and then he leaves and there's no, you know what I mean? Like there's no sloppiness or anything like that. Well, if that happens, that happens after we're, we hang out. And he's like, can I leave this here? for the next time. And it was like this little bottle of Jameson. And I was like, yeah, just go ahead and put it up in the cupboard. And so now I've got like, I'm living with this open bottle of Jameson and, you know, I have people, you know, roommates. And so there's other booze and stuff here, but it doesn't occur to me that I'm going to drink the Jameson every time I go into the cupboard to get a can of garbanzo beans or something, you know, like, it's just there. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I have this weird fear though. Okay. That when I'm asleep, if there's alcohol in the house, that I'll be a different person when I'm like, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to sleepwalk and like break my sobriety. So I don't, um, we have a few like closed bottles of, of wine, you know, mm-hmm. that have been addicted, um, and like champagne, but, uh, yeah, those are, cl- I don't know. So I, I'm, I, I like, no, I'm not afraid I'll drink when I'm awake, but I have this irrational fear that I might sleepwalk and destroy it all. I mean, 
it's, I don't mean to give you invasive thoughts. No, 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 no. I, so I went through a period of drinking dreams and they were very heavy and they were very horrible. And I don't know if you had any of these early in sobriety, but I would wake up feeling so remorseful. Like I had actually done the things in the dream and it was just like this horrible feeling. Now it was a relief to know that I hadn't actually done those things, but like the bad feelings were really there. And so now that I've lived in this house for as long as I have, like six years, and um, it's, it's the people's second home. So they come up, they visit, whatever, and they have all kinds of stuff here. And I think to me, I realize because I can and it's right there and I could probably do it, I could probably do it for a day or two and nobody would know. Eventually, everybody would know. It wouldn't, it wouldn't take long. But there's a certain sense of like, um, it's almost as if it's voodoo, where if I know it's there, it's not going to happen. I know that maybe it makes some weird sense, maybe, but like, like it's, it's too easy. So of course, I'm not going to do it, right? Whereas if, if there was no booze in the house, and then I was feeling on edge, and I was like, okay, God, I need to go out. And then it would be like, I would start playing it in my mind about the corner store I would go to and the liquor and the beer and whatever. And, and so in a way, him coming over and leaving the little bottle of Jameson behind the bag of peanuts is just a good reminder for me that I don't do that anymore. Right. So, and it's different for everyone, you know, and I certainly would not want you to sleepwalk your way into a relapse, you know, even if that sounds irrational, like good, then that's, then that's the rule that you live by. Right. So I, um, yeah. So that's kind of, that's, that's how I look at it now because yeah, I mean, I could do it right now. Like that would make no sense and it would be insane, but so it's just a trip. Um, yeah. What do you, um, what, like, do you have any advice for people, say somebody who's listening who maybe is newly sober or wants to get sober or even thinking about maybe being sober if they've made it this far through the podcast, I don't, you know, like listening to us talk about it and they're still drinking, looking for something. I, I'm going to repeat advice that other people gave me that I thought was helpful. Um, And so if it's helpful for anyone, great. Um, I had a friend tell me very sincerely, you know, you can still have a beautiful life. And that struck me because I knew she was right. And that's not to say that you, you can quit at any time and still have a beautiful life. But I knew that I had to stop at that moment, that there was time for me to not spend my entire life like this, that I could start over. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard that and that was exactly what I needed to hear. And then the other thing um, I start. I went to this women's meeting for my first year of sobriety, and these women were great. They were all like, like high power, like you know, like very successful, like badass women, and um, very supportive of one another. 
I was crying in the meeting about my like, you know, ex-girlfriend and how I had messed it up because of my drinking. And John, I kid you not, I probably cried about this woman, like my first 90 days of sobriety in every single meeting, I would like talk about her and like bless these people for like dealing with me. But this woman, um, said to me, and I think this sort of resonated because it almost like the way she said it sounded a little naughty. And I think, I don't know, a lot of alcoholics, like we like, we like being able to like get away with something. Mm -hmm. And she said, um, she like pulled me in after the meeting and she said, if you just play by these rules, no one says no to you again. (laughs) (sighs) Now people have said no, but Mm -hmm. it's like the bigger picture sort of, you know, thing. Right. Um, Like you're not going to fuck up. Like you're, you're not going to fuck up in this way again. You know, you're going to, you're going to be able to get what you want. I mean, I loved that and it gave me motivation to stay on track and it still gives me motivation to stay on track. Yeah. You know, I was, I was given a lot of gifts, you know, in sobriety and now it, now it's like, oh, well, if you, if you drink or you, you'll fuck all these gifts up and I don't want to do that. Yeah. So that's sort of where I, what I think I needed. I think that's great. I mean, that's definitely, um, no one will say no to you ever again. Like what, a um, and you know, part of me wants to go like, when I hear that part of me feels like, yes, that feels great. And then part of me is like, come on, man, are you just trying to hustle me into this higher power bullshit? Because, you know, I was very in the, in the beginning, early in sobriety, you know, I was very, people would give me their business card and they would shake my hand and like, anytime you want to talk. And I was like, get the fuck away from me. What do you want? And I'm like, well, they just want to help. And it was, it took me so long to realize that. And I eventually had to go and apologize to one dude. And I was like, I just want to let you know, man, like, I know we never talked, but I was very resentful toward you for a long time for giving me your business card. And it was really stupid of me. And, and like, you know, I just want that out of my head. It's just about getting it out of my head, you know? So I think that that's, that's, that's part of it too. It doesn't have to be these active, angry things. It can just, because... I just want it out of my head. I want yeah. the, what is it? What do they say that lift the obsession? The obsession has been lifted. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I'm so glad that you decided to do this. And sometimes I feel like I am, you know, leveraging friendships and relationships for this podcast in some sort of egotistical way. I mean, I feel like on some level, obviously, if it's out there in the public, that's part of it. But just talking to you today and talking about all this, I feel far more inspired to like write and be focused on these things when I talk to you Um, and you talk about staying on the program, because I know that I, and especially lately, have been extraordinarily frustrated with a great many things. We don't need to go into all the details, but. I will hear myself saying things like, where are these fucking promises? And, you know, yelling at myself, nobody else. This is I'm not even speaking these things out loud. But when I hear you say the things that, you, that you've shared today, like 
it's it's extraordinarily helpful to me. So I have to imagine that um, it is for other people. But I just wanted to thank you for for the things that you said today and and for agreeing to do this because for whatever reason, I don't know how you know I know how we met, but like why we're we're doing the thing that we're doing here. Um, I really appreciate you and like it means a lot your friendship. So. Oh, I feel the same exact way. Thank you. I know I was, I was a little nervous, even though like I've shared in, in meetings, you know, before, um, I guess it was, and I will talk to anyone about it who wants to listen, but I guess it was one of my first, um, outside of meeting rooms talking about it experiences. So thank you for giving that to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, I mean, and yeah, I just, I just, again, um, thank you. And it was, it was, it's, it means a hell of a lot. And so um, lastly, where can anyone find you to find the things that you have done and do and did? You can find me um, in two places. You can find me on Instagram at Grace Writes Drama. You can find me on Twitter at GC Writes. Um, and I lied, there's a third place. Um, you can also find me on my website, <laughs> www.thegracejordan.com. And um, I've been uh, continuously updating it, but I think I'm finally have, like I'm, it's finally in a place where I um, urge you all to log on and look at my website. Uh, absolutely, I will do that as soon as we're done here. Um, <laughs> awesome, thank you again. I appreciate you. Thank you. And um, I look forward to reading your work in print soon. Same. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'll talk to you soon, John. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at aisforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs>